Hey everybody, it's Michael Mitchell and this is Once Upon a Time in Texas podcast number three. Super excited to be doing this. I'm getting lots of good feedback from people and uh, sounds like people are kind of enjoying it, which I'm pretty super excited about. But uh, so yeah, um, just as a friendly reminder, um, this is Once Upon a Time in Texas. It is sponsored by um, the company I work with and for called Miracle Mortgage right here in Wichita Falls, Texas. We can do mortgages, um, any type of mortgages, anywhere in the state of Texas. So we can do VA, FHA, USDA, conventional, even found out we can do one-time construction loans um, or one-time close, sorry, construction loans. So yeah, check me out at themichaelmitchell.com. So... There you go. If you know somebody that's moving to Texas or somebody that's moving in Texas looking to do a home loan, tell them to check me out. I think I'm fair to moderately entertaining and I try to make that mortgage process as cheap and easy and fun as possible. So there we go. So this week I was doing a little bit of research and I thought, man, what am I going to do a podcast about? Because, you know, I got to find stuff. Of course, Texas is a big state and there's lots of cool stuff. Um, that happens here, but you know, we're back on history again. I haven't had any of my friends that have had the availability quite yet to be able to jump over here and do a, uh, podcast with me. And I'm hoping to add some more people to this later. So just know that I'm going to get some more people on here in the future, get a little banter back and forth, but you know, I love history. And so let me ask y'all, where was the last battle of the Civil War. Anybody? That's right. It was Texas. Although there is a little bit of controversy behind it because there was one other place in Alabama. But from what I can tell with the very minimal amount of research that I did, that uh, the general consensus is this is it right here in the good old state of Texas. So what was this battle? Well, it was called the Battle of Palmito Hill. So most of them say it fits the criteria as the final battle of the Civil War. It was fought May 12th and 13th in 1865 on the banks of the good old Rio Grande, just east of Brownsville, Texas, <clears throat> and a few miles from the seaport of Los Brazos de Santiago. Um, which was a pretty important place. You know, anytime that you had a seaport where you could ship stuff out and bring stuff in, that's a, that's a big deal. So I think the Confederate side and the Union side wanted to keep that port open and they both wanted control of it. So let's take a quick look back at our little bit of history. So, you know, the Union forces, General Robert E. Lee, um, surrenders and, uh, Unconditional surrender at the Appomattox Courthouse in April, I think it was April 9th, 1865. And uh, unfortunately, news traveled a little slower than it does today. I mean, my gosh, I'm sitting here doing a podcast. I can hit a button and I can blast it out worldwide in about five minutes. Um, we didn't have podcasts and stuff back in good old 1865. They had some telegraph stuff and, you know, mostly it was done by mail or news or other things like that. But so the problem is <clears throat> it took a little while. And so, uh, 
you know, the first little bit of research I found showed, you know, he surrenders in April, April 9th, and then this Battle of Palmito Hill happens, you know, May 12th and 13th, so a little over a month later, and so there were some people that said, well, they had this little battle just because they didn't know yet. Well, that's actually not true either. They knew about it. So uh, anyway, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this. So Union and Confederate forces were in Texas, were in Southern Texas. And that's, that's another thing that a lot of people assume is that the Union was never really in Texas. And it's, it's not true. And uh, yeah, I mean, they had both forces here. And uh, yeah, I mean, they were, they were both looking at it. So um, the Union Army had control of the lower Rio Grande Valley for, for quite a while. And what they were doing was they were protecting, um, the Confederates were protecting their remaining ports. And so cotton, cotton is the big trade of the day. Obviously they needed to get that out to ship it to Europe for money. And they also needed other supplies, you know, importation of supplies. So, you know, ammunition and, and, you know, food for people and everything. And so the Confederates are really watching this. And then because it's way down on the Southern tip of Texas, you know, the, the Mexicans in Mexico are really watching what's going on. And, you know, cause the Mexicans were pretty interested in this, you know, lucrative cotton export trade. And so, um, you know, so they're kind of keeping an eye and a pulse on the situation you know, but what's interesting is they had kind of heard about the surrender at Appomattox. Um, so they, uh, they're, they're kind of, they're kind of sitting around, I guess, maybe twiddling their thumbs a little bit. And the, the, the union major general that was down here, his name was Lou Wallace, um, decides to kind of do a gentleman's agreement with this Confederate Brigadier General James Slaughter. And so they met and had a couple of subordinates meet and they meet in Port Isabel in March of 1865. So this is a month before the surrender, but they have this agreement. They said, you know what? There's hostilities and stuff. Maybe we should kind of ease up because we think the end may be near. So let's, let's put together and do a little ceasefire. Well, this made this Confederate Major General Walker mad. He rejected it, sends a bunch of, uh, you know, scathing letters out and basically says, do your dang job. And so anyway, soldiers start ending up, you know, going down there. Um, Things are kind of ramping up. Um, On the Union side, you had the 34th Indiana Veteran Volunteer Infantry. Isn't that kind of cool? The the 34th Indiana. I love how they they named them all, you know, because where they were from. You know, so you had the 34th Indiana, and you had the 1st Missouri, and the the 2nd Texas Mounted, you know, Cavalry. And so there's all kinds of cool stuff. So anyway, um, about 1,900 unit troops are stationed. Um, they were on blockade duty down at the port of Brazos, Santiago. So right at the mouth of present day, uh, port of Brownsville. And so they had this, uh, these 1900 troops, um, 
you know, and they're down there and they're basically down there starting from what I understand about, or from what I found about December, 1863 up until, you know, December, 1864 when they're replaced. Um, and then they sent some United States colored troops or as they were known USCT. So short for United States colored troops. So that was the, uh, Originally, they were called the 87th and the 62nd, and then they changed it up to where they're the the 67th, or I'm sorry, the 62nd USCT, so United States Colored Troops, which is a big deal because, you know, a lot of colored troops hadn't been allowed to fight before then. And so, of course, there's lots of history and stuff on that, and we might get into that later. I don't know, some of the Buffalo soldiers and stuff that were here in Texas, but Anyway, they ended up with a a 30-year-old commander, um, a colonel named Theodore Barrett. So he gets put in charge. This guy is, you know, he's young. He's wanting a promotion. He's wanting to see some combat. And the only way to get a higher rank is to see combat. And so he he volunteers to kind of lead the colored regiments. And he's appointed in 1863 as a colonel. Um, with the first Missouri colored infantry. And then in March of 1864, he becomes um, the head cheese for the 62nd USCT. But then while they're moving to Texas, he gets malaria in Louisiana and gets laid up. So he's on uh, convalescent leave. Isn't that kind of nice sounding? That's kind of a big word, but convalescent leave. That almost sounds rather pleasant, although we know that was a pretty nasty time. Of course, malaria back in the 1860s was probably not good to have. But in the meantime, his group, the 67th, they move on down to the uh, um, to that Brownsville area. Port of Brownsville, I'm just going to call it Port of Brownsville instead of the Brazos Santiago. So anyway, he ends up getting there in February 1865 after uh, after he recovers a bit. So this is where it gets interesting. Historians really don't know why this engagement, this battle took place. So Lee is surrendered to Grant at Appomattox in April. And then there's a bunch of formal surrenders, you know, across the United States, you know, Confederates are are surrendering to Union officers once they hear the news and all that. And so the Confederate and Union officers in Brownsville knew that Lee had surrendered. You know, and and basically it ended the war between the states. And so, you know, that this is a big deal. But then it comes down to there's, I guess, some question. There was a bunch of cotton still left to sell. Um, you know, and the the Union soldiers are there, the Confederate soldiers are there. Um you know, who gets to sell it, who gets to bring in the money, um, you know, something like that. And so basically a, uh, there's a brigadier general from the Confederate side, I believe. Nope. I'm sorry. A Confederate general from the union side who decides, you know what, we need to send an expedition down there and seize as contraband 2,000 bales of cotton, which was stored in Brownsville, and we'll just sell them for our own profit. Um, so that was one theory 
but then it's turned out, you know, it turned out that this guy didn't get appointed to this command until way later in May. So that little historical piece is thrown out of the window. But then, you know, there's this historian named Jerry Thompson. And so here's what he puts, and I'm, I'm just going to quote this. What was at stake was honor and money with a stubborn reluctance to admit defeat. Ford asserted that the dignity and manhood of his men had to be defended. Having previously pro- proclaimed that he would never capitulate to a mongrel force of abolitionist Negroes, plundering Mexicans, and perfidious renegades, Ford was not about to surrender to invading black troops. Ugh. I love how they word things. Perfidious. I'm going to have to look that up and see what it means later. So I might do that right now while I'm looking at the rest of this. Oops. Nope. I need to stay on there. So anyway, uh, he was not about to surrender to these black troops because, of course, that would just be, you know, uh, pardon the pun, but a black eye, I guess. So even more important was a large quantity of Richard King and Mifflin Kennedy's cotton stacked in Brownsville, waiting to be sent across the river to Matamoros. If Ford did not hold off the invading federal force, the cotton would be confiscated by the Yankees and thousands of dollars lost. Well, hot dang, we just <coughs> we just couldn't afford to do that. Hey, hang on just a second. Let me look up this perfidious word. Hang on, let me just copy and paste it. We got a minute. Don't don't go away yet. I just want to see what perfidious means. I think I can kind of figure it out, but uh, oh, of course, my computer's moving slow. Perfidious is oh, come on, Google. There we go. Deceitful and untrustworthy. Ooh, I'm gonna to have to add that to uh, to my vocabulary. So there you go. Use that use that word perfidious, and it said perfidious renegades. You know, deceitful, untrustworthy renegades. So yeah, there you go. So that's what he's calling these Union soldiers. So anyway, basically, it just turns out, um, you know, what it sounds like to me after doing my vast deep dive of about. 20 minutes of research um confederates had some cotton and the union wanted it and even though the war was over um you know didn't matter so anyway here we go so here comes the battle you know we're bumping up to march 12th and 13th and so you have this young lieutenant colonel by the name of david branson who wants to attack the the confederate encampments that were commanded by this, this Ford guy at the White and Palmito ranches, which were near Fort Brown, just outside of Brownsville. So Branson, the Union side, Branson, his force consisted of about 250 men out of the 62nd United States Colored Troops um, and a couple of companies of the 2nd Texas Cavalry Battalion. And so this is, this is interesting, though, too. There was a... Th- the the second Texas Cavalry Battalion was 300 uh, men strong, um, and they were mostly composed largely of like Texans of Mexican or uh, of Mexican origin that remained loyal to the United States. And so, you know, there's a big assumption out there, I guess, that you know, just about everybody that was here in Texas um, was on the Confederate side at the time. 
And uh, it's not really true. There were apparently a fair amount of them that were on the Union side here in Texas. So anyway, um, they moved from the port kind of down there, more mainland. And in this first attempt to really get at the Confederates, they ended up capturing three prisoners, um, some supplies. Um, but it really didn't, it, it didn't give that surprise. So anyway, so that's in the morning. In the afternoon, the Confederate forces counterattacked. They just get a little irritated and they said, you know what? They've got these, you know, 250 colored troops and these 300, you know, second Texas cavalry. By God, we're going to, we're going to fight them back. So they send a, a hundred cavalry after them and they drive this union, uh, this union lieutenant colonel back to White's Ranch, which is where they decide to fight for a night. Well, huh? Well, what do we do now? Well, of course, nobody's going to give up. So they all send for reinforcements and they get them. So Ford ends up with six. It says Ford arrives with six French guns. I'm going to assume that this was uh, some sort of cannon or something like that. It doesn't really say it doesn't specify what these guns are. And then the rest of his cavalry force, so about 300 guys total. So um, Barrett, this guy that was down, uh, you know, the Union Barrett is down at the port. He comes up with 200 troops from the 34th Indiana. And then, of course, you have the 250 men from the 62nd United States Colored Troops and the 300 guys from the 2nd Texas Cavalry Battalion. So this next day, Barrett, the Union guy Barrett, starts moving westward. And from what I can gather, he's just mad. And so he's about a half mile west of Palmito Ranch, and they have a skirmish. And so Ford, the Confederate guy, attacks Barrett forces. It's a little skirmish. Um, And then there's an advance um, of the Confederate force right on the Rio Grande about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And anyway, this fighting and stuff just kind of goes on. Um, They try to fight from several different angles, but the Confederates had artillery, which, and apparently the Union side didn't have artillery. So that's why I'm thinking those were cannons, the six French cannons. And so it just really kind of kept him from, uh, as a friend of mine says, getting his poop in a group. Like he couldn't get everybody, uh, everybody together. So they decide to start retreating um, which lasts until May 14th. But, uh, so the official numbers here are that 50 members of the 34th Indiana rear guard company, 30 stragglers and 20 of the dismounted cavalry, which I've never heard dismounted cavalry. I guess their horses were taken away. I don't know. Um, so they're surrounded in a bend of the Rio Grande and captured. And that's, that's kind of, for the most part, where it ends. And so the very last battle of the civil war, for the most part, I'll tell y'all about the conflict here in a minute, but this is considered for the most part, the last battle. And it's recorded as a Confederate victory. The Confederates won, even though the Confederates had already surrendered at Appomattox a month before. And so Anyway, it's, it's kind of interesting. There's a little bit of, you know, pomp and circumstance about it. I think it, 
it sounds like reading through this and it's really hard to read through this stuff because you've got Colonel this and Lieutenant Colonel that and Major this and General this. And they forget to put on their Union or Confederate each time. So you can kind of get lost in this stuff. So I really had to kind of stick with it. But in August, um, Barrett, who was the, the Union guy that we talked about, the guy that got malaria in Louisiana, Uh, He reported 115 Union casualties overall. So he says one killed, nine wounded, and 105 captured. Um, Confederate casualties were reported as five or six wounded and none killed. So that's kind of of interesting. Although another historian... um, you know, did, you know, dug into a little more research and found that the union deaths were actually probably a little higher. Um, so it was reported that one was killed. Um, he did a little digging and it was probably around 30 killed. Um, but the reason that 30 of them were killed or, or died, you know, killed, you assume happened in battle. Somebody got shot or something like that. What happened was when they're retreating, um, they're crossing the Rio Grande. Well, a bunch of these guys didn't know how to swim. And so they've actually found reports that, you know, maybe one was actually shot and killed, but it looks like around 30 total died with the majority of them drowning in the Rio Grande. Um, or when they get to the other side, they had French border guards. And um, I guess France was in Mexico at the time. I don't know. Maybe I need to do a little looking into that later, but so French border guards on the Mexican side um, shot him. However, uh, he also found that, and he estimates that the Confederate casualties were really about the, the same number. But, you know, this was kind of the last big, you know, last big battle, I guess. And there's probably some people that really wanted to hang on to that. And so anyway, later a, a court-martial comes around um you know, kind of this tribunal and the official record that is put down is out of the Union 62nd USCT, um, two killed, four wounded. The 34th Indiana had one killed, one wounded and 79 captured. And the 2nd Texas Cavalry Battalion had one killed, seven wounded and 22 captured. So this totaled uh, four that were killed, 12 wounded and 101 captured. I don't know. So it sounds like they just didn't really know how to count a whole lot then. So I don't know. I just find that that's really interesting history. Now here is where, here's where it kind of gets interesting. And so, uh, or actually, I'm sorry, let me back up. And so for the most part, um, the last person, the last fatality of the civil war, which happened at the battle of Palmito ranch way down in South Texas, was a private uh, John J. Williams. So he is considered, by most, the final combat death of the entire war. So I look up a little bit about him, and it's really unfortunate. I assume he was a fairly young guy because he was a private. But you look at this and you go, man, um, everything about him really has to do with him being the last combat death of the entire war. And I thought, man, what a crappy legacy and a you know poor guy and his family and then the unfortunate part is he was killed a month after basically you know pretty much the war ended like what kind of sucky legacy is that so 
you know, if there's any family members out there for private John J. Williams, um, of the 34th Indiana, um, man, that sucks. Sorry to hear that. Bad deal. Sure. He was a great guy. And so anyway, so let's, let's get into why there's a little bit of argument, I guess, with historians. So, um, officially, (laughs) and this is so funny because there's lots of all those and maybes and stuff. So although officially most historians say this is the land, the last land action fought between the North and the South, some sources actually suggest that a battle called the Battle of Hobney's, I'm sorry, Hobdy's Bridge. It's H-O-B-D-Y-S. So the Battle of Hobdy's Bridge on May 19th, 1865, so a few days after this, happened in Eufaula, Alabama. They say this was the last skirmish between the two forces. And the Union records claim that the last Northern soldier killed in combat during the war was a Corporal John W. Skinner. And this happened um, at this May 19th, 1865 Hobdy's Bridge battle. And so it does say three others were wounded from the same unit, company, First Florida, um, U.S. Cavalry. I just did a, a quick, you know, just a quick little dive into it. And there's some arguments whether whether it was a skirmish, was it really a battle, or was it just two groups that knew everything was over and had surrendered and were just kind of still pissed off at each other. And so they just decided to shoot it out. I don't know. But basically that's kind of, the, the general consensus, I guess. Um, so anyway, it's, it's just kind of interesting. And, and then they talk a little more about, you know, pensions due to this battle at, at Hob, uh, Hobdy's Bridge. Apparently the Confederates are also considered to have won that engagement, but the big reason that they question whether it's legit or not is because there was no organized command structure. So apparently this was just, Hey, I don't like you. You don't like me. Let's shoot it out. And so uh, a lot of these guys actually had their pensions cut later. So that kind of sucks too, you know, but so they had their pensions cut and then they later ended up getting their pensions back but I guess that's why there was this controversy uh, and that's why the the honor, I guess, or the moniker for the last official battle of the Civil War goes to the Battle of uh, Palmito Ranch as opposed to the Battle of Hobdy's Bridge. Has to do with the official command structure from both sides. So anyway, I just find that really fascinating. But to wrap it up, I'd like to go ahead and read. So... Um, The battlefield, pretty much from what they say, has remained relatively unchanged. Um, They say that they're marshy, windswept prairies. Um, So they were almost the same as they were in 1865. Says it's a site of about 5,400 acres. And they have, uh, um, they've originally gotten, uh, the Civil War Trust got three acres to preserve part of the battlefield. And then the uh, Texas Historical Commission puts up a nice, um, oh, 
a nice placard on the side of the highway. It says Battle of Palmito Ranch. I'll just read this out to y'all. The last land engagement of the Civil War was fought near this site on May 12th and 13th, 1865, 34 days after Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. Colonel Theodore H. Barrett commanded federal troops, or Union troops, on the Brazos Island, 12 miles to the east. The Confederates occupied Fort Brown, 12 miles to the west, commanded by General James E. Slaughter, and Colonel John S. Rip Ford, whose troops had captured Fort Brown from the Federals, or Union soldiers, in 1864. Ordered to recapture the fort, Lieutenant Colonel David Branson and 300 men advanced from Brazos Island. They won a skirmish with Confederate pickets on May 12th. Barrett reinforced Branson's troops with 200 men on May 13th and renewed the march to Fort Brown. Confederate cavalry held the Federals in check until Ford arrived with reinforcements that afternoon. Ford's artillery advanced and fired on the northern end of the Federal line while the cavalry charged. The Confederate right charged the southern end of the Federal line and captured part of the Union infantry. Barrett ordered a retreat towards the U.S. position on Brazos Island. While the Confederates reported no fatalities in the Battle of Palmito Ranch, the Union forces reported four officers and 111 men killed, wounded, or missing. So, wow. There you go, folks. The Battle of Palmito Ranch. And I had no idea. And I've lived in Texas for a long time now. So I just thought that was interesting. Last official battle of the Civil War held right here in Texas and actually won by the Confederates. That's... uh. That's pretty fascinating to me, guys. And it was all fought way down on the Rio Grande, way down South Tip. So that's pretty interesting. So uh, anyway, uh, next week, I'm going to try to get um, a guest over to talk. Uh, My plan right now is to do a little bit of stuff on uh, things that people think about Texas when they're from other states that really aren't necessarily true. I think that'll be interesting. So the friend that I'm trying to get to come over um, was born and raised in California. She's lived here in Texas for a while, but we've had some pretty, uh, funny chats. And I think, uh, we'll have a good time doing this, uh, this podcast together. So again, remember this podcast was developed and researched and done by me, Michael Mitchell. It is sponded, uh, sponded. Ugh, can't even talk today. It is sponsored by Miracle Mortgage, the company that I do mortgages with or for, I guess I work for, work with. Um, you can find me at themichaelmitchell.com. So go check me out. There's lots more information about me. I'm just this goofy, chunk of beard, chunky bearded guy here in Wichita Falls, Texas that just loves history. I like helping people out. So if you know somebody that's moving to Texas or moving in Texas, wanting to buy a new house, send them my way. I'll try to be pretty entertaining And uh, my mortgage company can do it faster, cheaper, and easier than anybody else. Pretty much guaranteed. Would love to help them out. So y'all stay tuned. Thank you for checking out podcast number three of Once Upon a Time in Texas. Good night, I can't talk today. Once Upon a Time in Texas. Remember, folks, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great week. Looking forward to seeing you next time.